You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Um, We're turning to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be starting in chapter 9. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 13. And if you have got a blue Bible, it's on page 1012. So we're in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death, before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Uh, My name is Ralph, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And just want to add my welcome uh, to Chris's. Uh, You're really, really welcome here today. Uh, If you're new in Manchester, we're delighted. We had the opportunity to say welcome to Manchester, uh, and we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, we're going to turn to look at that passage uh, that Katie just read. Uh, but before we do, let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you speak to us today through your living word. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you take the word that you inspired and illuminate our hearts to receive it? Would you take... The, the souls that you knit together and enable us to respond, not just in our heads, but in all that we are to you, that we might know all that we have in Christ. Amen. What did you expect? What did you expect of the Christian life? Over the last few weeks, we've been hearing stories from the Hope Cumbria camp. 
and hearing how God has done some amazing things. Young people putting their trust in Jesus for the first time, having their lives transformed. For many of those young people, it, it was a high point in their Christian life. We might even say it was a mountaintop experience. But with mountains, you, you inevitably have to come down, don't you? They, they had to leave the comfort of, of being surrounded by believers in a safe and fun environment. And if you're one of them, you know that you were plunged back into a classroom at the start of this month where the population of Christians is a single solitary one. You. Plunged into a place where your beliefs are constantly challenged, where your views are viewed as strange at best, dangerous at worst. What did you expect the Christian life to be like? The older ones among us, we, we know something similar, don't we? We can look back at times of, of great spiritual highs. Perhaps it was that moment when we became a Christian. Maybe it was when we were involved in leadership in the Christian Union. Maybe it was when we were involved in starting a new church. Maybe it was when we first arrived here in Manchester. We look back on those times with great excitement and joy. But the reality now is quite different. Perhaps it's a problem at work that you're facing. Or the fact your neighbours, who you keep on trying to share the good news of Jesus with, just throw it back in your face. Maybe it's sickness or, or heartbreak or, or a profound sense of loneliness. What did you expect the Christian life to be like? And I guess that's a good question for those of you here today who are not yet Christians to be asking yourself. What is the Christian life like? There are people, there are churches here in Manchester who will tell you that the Christian life is all about health and wealth and prosperity. If you become a Christian, you will become a child of the king of the whole universe, which means it's first-class travel all the way for you. Champagne and caviar, joy unimaginable. But I need to tell you that the Bible says something very very different. It tells us that the Christian life is suffering now, glory later. Yes, the hope of the gospel is that great mountaintop experience, joy unimaginable in the embrace of God. But the pathway to that mountain of joy is through the valley of suffering. Uh, we're in the book of Mark. As Katie said, uh, we were in Mark's gospel this time last year as well. Th this is Mark's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and we looked at part one of this account last year. That's chapters one through to eight. Uh, and the big question there in part one was, who is Jesus? And the answer came in chapter eight, verse 29, when the apostle Peter declares, you are the Messiah. You are God's promised, anointed king. You, you see, the whole of the Old Testament had been looking forward to the coming of a king. 
A king like King David, only better. Who would lead God's people in glorious victory over their enemies. And Peter, he's standing there, having experienced for all of his life the cruel, oppressive rule of the Romans. And he's literally shaking with excitement. The, The moment's come. The king, the king who will bring us victory, he's finally here. But as we move on to part two of Mark's gospel, we shift from asking, who is Jesus, to asking the second question, what did Jesus come into the world to do? And Peter finds the answer shocking. I've got three points for us today, three questions for us to think through. Firstly, what did you expect? Secondly, who do you need? And thirdly, how will he help you? So first up, what did you expect? You see, Peter expected that a life following Jesus, a life following the Messiah would be glory now and glory later. That's why when when Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 31, I must suffer, be rejected, and die, Peter pipes up, ah, no, 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 no. Peter... Peter, you're, you're reading, Peter says, Jesus, you're, you're reading the wrong script. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is not supposed to suffer and die. No, you are the one who's come to win, to rule, to, to reign, to live. And look at how Jesus replies in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter expected that a life following Jesus would be success, acclaim, victory, adulation. But look at what Jesus says it will involve. Verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you've been a Christian a while, that's a familiar verse. And and the problem for us with that verse is that the cross has become the symbol of Christianity. So many church buildings, they they have a cross right up there standing at the front. Many Christians wear the cross as a piece of jewellery around their neck. But in the first century, everyone knew what the cross was. An instrument of unspeakable torture. The ultimate weapon in the arsenal of the Roman regime. Their means of putting down rebellion. You see, the cross wasn't simply a means of execution. There are lots of easier ways to kill people. The purpose of the cross was to utterly humiliate, to debase, to shame. It was reserved only for the enemies of Rome. If you were an enemy of Rome, you would be stripped naked. You would be whipped to within an inch of your life, and then you would have been forced to parade around the city naked, carrying your cross 
on your whip mark back. Eventually, you'd get to the place of execution where they would take the crossbeam and they would nail you to it. It was always in a public place, usually on a highway, so that everyone could see. And as they drove in the nails, they would be really, really careful to make sure that they severed the nerves so that you experienced the most pain. And there you would hang. And that would be where the pain really starts. You see, if you've got your arms up there above your head, you cannot breathe. Your lungs... They're restricted and cannot take in oxygen. So what you have to do is you need to yank yourself up against your arms and feet through which the nails have been driven. It's the only way you can breathe. Unspeakably painful. Becoming more and more painful each time you do it. Until finally you've run out of energy. You cannot pull up anymore and you die of asphyxiation or heart failure. The cross was the ultimate torture, the ultimate shame, and it became the symbol of Christianity. The church could have chosen plenty of different symbols for Christianity. They could have chosen the manger to remind us of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh. They could have chosen a loaf of bread to to remind us of God's miraculous provision for his people. They could have chosen the empty tomb to, to remind us of the glorious news of the resurrection. But they chose a cross. Why? Well, because the cross was the climax of Jesus' work. But I think also because the cross is the pathway for Jesus' followers. Take a look at verse 34 of chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If, if you want to follow me, Jesus says, it's going to mean a life of shame, a life of suffering, a life of humiliation and of death. That was very literal for Peter. According to the Roman historian Eusebius, Peter was crucified under Emperor Nero in AD 64. Church history says that he was crucified upside down. Now, that's not going to be the normal experience for every Christian today. But you know, death for their faith is the experience of Christians here and now today in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia. And northern Nigeria. And parts of India. But but even if we're not among those who die for their faith, following Jesus will mean suffering for every single Christian. Because we'll suffer all the normal things of life. Sickness, death, loneliness, loss. But we will suffer particularly as Christians as well. Well, we will if we're active in sharing Jesus with others. 
Because every time you share Jesus with others, some people will, will enthusiastically say, yes, this is the greatest news ever. But other people, well, they will reject you and persecute you. That was Jesus' experience. That was Peter's experience in the first century. It was the, the church's experience in the first century. And it will be our experience today if we're faithful. What did you expect? Suffering now, glory later. Which brings us to our second question. Who do you need? Who do you need when the doctor gives you the diagnosis that you dread? Who do you need when your boyfriend is unfaithful to you? When you don't get the grades you were hoping for to get into your school? Who do you need when your parents divorce? Who do you need when you are passed over for promotion at work because you're known as the Christian in the office? When your classmates shun you because of your views on gender and sexuality? Who do you need when you say no to something that you really, really want because you know that God says it is not good for you right now? Well, Jesus knew the suffering that his disciples would face. That's why he gave them this promise in verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus is referring to the very next thing which will happen in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. That's probably Mount Hermon, just outside Caesarea. And there we read, he was transfigured before them. Now, the word used there in the original is the Greek word metamorpheo, from which we get our word metamorphosed. Jesus was metamorphosed before them. His clothes, verse 7, they became dazzling white. A cloud descends, and then a voice comes from out the cloud. Jesus, on Mount Hermon, he is shown to be the man of glory. Now, what's the significance here of Elijah and Moses appearing? I think it's showing us that the climax of God's plan of salvation is near. You see, the Old Testament teaches that both Moses and Elijah will return just before God comes to wrap up things. So listen to this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord speaking to Moses, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. The Israelites thought they knew who this person was. They thought this person would be the Messiah, the promised king to come, who would be a prophet like Moses. When he comes, the end is near. And then in the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the Lord God promises to send Elijah back into the world just before the end to prepare the world for the day of judgment. 
so, so you can see what's happening here in Mark chapter 9. We're being told the end is near. What we have in Mark chapter 9 is, is like a preview. It's like a trailer of what will happen when Jesus returns in glory as the man of glory. Shortly after the Duke of Edinburgh died, Prince Philip, his grandson, Prince William, was interviewed by the BBC, and he, he told many stories about the Duke of Edinburgh. And I think my favourite was this one uh, where he tells of the time when he, they were out driving together in Scotland in the Land Rover, and as they were out driving around the estate, they came across a group that was very obviously a group of Duke of Edinburgh students out on their expedition with their rucksacks on, trudging through the mud. And Prince Philip spotted them, and he decided to, to drive one over. He stopped the car. He wound down the window and said, Good morning. How are you getting on? To which the, the smallest one, Prince William said, uh, the, the little boy at the back, turned to Prince Philip and said, Jog on, Grandpa. <laughs> Now, you can be pretty sure that boy would not have said that to Prince Philip when he was in the palace picking up his Duke of Edinburgh awards. You see, he didn't see Prince Philip for who he truly was. And in the same way, Peter, James, and John were not seeing Jesus for who he truly was. And so Jesus gives them a glimpse of his glory. And we learn three things about Jesus' identity from what happens here. In the Old Testament, there were three offices, three roles that were fulfilled in Israel. The role of a king, a prophet, and a priest. And here in Mark chapter 9, we're shown how Jesus gloriously fulfills each one of them. So let's take the king for a start. Now, details in Mark's gospel are really important. If you know the gospels, there are four of them. Mark is the shortest. Mark is punchy. He gets through the details really, really quickly. And he hardly ever speaks about length of time in Mark's gospel. He just says next or, or immediately or, or and. But here, in verse 2, Mark says, after six days. Why? Why that specific time detail? Well, I think it's because he wants his readers to think back to another event. The Lord meeting Moses on Mount Sinai. You see, Exodus chapter 23 verse 16 tells us that that happened after a six-day preparation. And the parallels between Sinai and what happens here in Mark 9, they don't just stop there with the amount of time. Listen to this. Jesus takes three disciples up with him onto Mount Hermon. Moses went up Sinai with three named persons in Exodus 24. God appears in an overshadowing cloud in Mark chapter 9. He appeared in a cloud in Exodus 24. A voice comes from the cloud in Mark chapter 9, just as it did in Exodus chapter 24, verse 18. People are astonished and fearful in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9 rather. People were astonished and fearful in Exodus. 
And Jesus becomes radiantly white in Mark's gospel. Just as Moses' skin shone as he descended Mount Sinai. But, you know, there is an important difference. There is a crucial difference between what happened in Exodus on Sinai and what happens here in Mark chapter 9 on Mount Hermon. You see, Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with God. Jesus went up Mount Hermon to be met by Moses. On Sinai, Moses was God's servant. On Hermon, Jesus is God's son. Moses' face, it it shone, but faded as he came down the mountain. Jesus was radiant. What's the difference? Well, Moses met with God, the king, on Mount Sinai. Jesus was shown to be God the King on Mount Hermon. Moses was like a moon whose face reflected the brightness of God as he came on down. Jesus is the sun, the sun itself radiating the glory of God. As Peter, James, and John faced a future of suffering now, glory later, they need to know that God was king, not just of Israel, but of the whole universe. He is the very one, Jesus, the one who holds together the solar system, who who gives food to the birds, who gives oxygen to our lungs. He's in control, and his plan is good. Jesus is king. Secondly, Jesus is shown to be the prophet. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 18 promised a prophet like Moses, only better. And that's exactly what we get. All the prophets of the Old Testament, they used to to come and say, thus says the Lord, listen to God. Look at what happens in verse 7 of Mark chapter 9. God says, listen to Jesus. It's so important to get this because this is what makes Christianity absolutely unique. Every other worldview seeks to point its followers to the way. So Muhammad pointed people to the Quran. Sam Harris points people to science. Karl Marx pointed people to communism. The Buddha pointed people to the fivefold path. Jesus didn't claim to point the way. No, Jesus claimed to be the way. There are lots of voices clamoring for your attention right now. Your boss at work demanding your time. Your teachers telling you that what the Bible says about gender and sexuality is dangerous. YouTube telling you that life is all about getting fame and fortune. Your parents telling you that the most important thing in life is your grades and career success. Who are you going to listen to? Well, Mark chapter 9 makes it really easy. 
listen to Jesus. Now, verse 7 is actually quite surprising. The disciples, they've just seen incredible things. Jesus shining as bright as the sun, a cloud descending. What would you expect God to say? You'd expect him to say, look at him. Look at how amazing Jesus is. But God doesn't say that. He says, listen to him. You see, Jesus is God's final word. And his words are recorded right here for us in the Bible. My Christian friends, as you face a life full of uncertainty, full of ups, yes, but full of downs as well, as you face sorrow and sadness, as you face loss and loneliness, listen to Jesus. His is the voice you need to hear. His is true truth speaking to you today, telling you the way things truly are. He is the voice from the mountain of the king, of the prophet, and yes, also the voice of the priest. Maybe you didn't see the priest in the passage. Yeah, yeah, the king makes sense, for sure you can see that, Mount Sinai and all that. The prophet makes sense. I mean, God says, listen to him, listen to my prophet. But what about the priest? Where's the priest here? Well, take a look at verse 5 again. You read verse 5, and it's tempting to mock Peter, isn't it? I mean, what a silly suggestion. He's seeing this amazing sight. He says, oh, let's put up some shelters. I mean, is that really as stupid as it sounds? Well, I don't actually think Peter's being as stupid as people think he is here. You see, the word that is translated shelter here is the same word that is translated tabernacle elsewhere in the Bible. And just think about what is happening here in Mark chapter 9. The glory of God is descending on the mountain. And in the Old Testament, we're told that no one can see God in his glory and live. God is so holy, so pure, so righteous, that sinful human beings, we would just be burned up in his presence. We'd be like a piece of paper held in a flame. So when God met with his people in the Old Testament, he always met with them in a tabernacle in a shelter that Israel packed up, carried around, and then put down wherever they settled. The tabernacle, it mediated God's presence. It enabled one person, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement to enter into the presence of God's glory as the cloud filled the tabernacle. And so now, as the cloud descends upon Mount Hermon, Peter sees what is happening. He knows what's going to happen. We're going to die. And he says, shall we put up shelters, tabernacles? Shall we make some way for God to dwell with us safely? And the answer is no. Because Jesus is the tabernacle. 
He is the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. He he is the great high priest. He, He is the one who represents man before God and God before man. That, that is what we Christians need to know as we face a life of suffering now, glory later. But how does it help us? Well, that's our final question today. Look at what happens in verses 8 to 10. Uh, Moses and Elijah, they disappear just as quickly as they came, and the disciples head down the mountain. And as they do, Jesus orders them not to say a word until he's risen from the dead. Now, now they hear Jesus mention rising from the dead, and they assume that he's speaking about the general resurrection at the end of time when all people will be raised from the dead. And so they ask Jesus the Malachi 4 question. But isn't Elijah supposed to come before, before that happens? Do you see what they're saying? They're saying the end can't be near, the resurrection can't be near because Elijah hasn't come in power yet. But look at Jesus' reply. He says, Elijah has come, but not in power. He came in weakness and suffering. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. And here in Mark chapter 9, verse 13, we're told that Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished. You see, just like the one that John the Baptist came to announce, John the Baptist himself suffered and died. I wonder, just, just as we finish, let's go back to those words that God speaks in verse 7. This is really the high point of the transfiguration. Look at those words that God speaks really carefully with me. There are three clauses here in the second half of verse 7. God says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. You know, each part is deliberate. Each part, each of those three, they are drawing on an Old Testament sentence. So this is my son. That's, that's a clear echo of Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8, where God is speaking of the Messiah, the King. Listen to him. We've already seen that. That's an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 18, the promise of a prophet like Moses, and whom I love. Well, that's what God says about his servant in Isaiah 42, who is then described in great detail in Isaiah chapter 53. He's the one that John the Baptist said he was here to announce. The one who would come as a priest, the great high priest, the one who would come to lay down his life for his people, his life for theirs pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Because friends, that is how the great chasm between heaven and earth could be bridged. That is how sinful humanity can be made to stand in the presence of a holy God. 
You know, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, it didn't just parallel what happened in the past on Mount Sinai. It paralleled what would happen in the future. At the end of Mark's gospel, on a mount called Golgotha. You see, at the transfiguration, Jesus was surrounded by two great prophets. On the cross, he's surrounded by two thieves. On the mountain, Jesus' garments radiated with glory, as white as white could be. On the cross, they were ripped from him. At the transfiguration, three male disciples stood close. At the cross, three female disciples stood and watched from afar. On the mountain, a voice from heaven declared Jesus to be the Son of God. On the cross, heaven remained silent. But one man, Jesus' executioner, a Roman centurion, declared him to be the Son of God. You see, that is how he helps you. Dying in your place for your sins. Taking the punishment that you and I deserve. He saves us by experiencing God's silence. So that we can hear God's voice. By being humiliated so that we can be lifted up. That, that is how you live the Christian life, of suffering now, glory later. But as we close, notice that this is not just something that you need to know up here in your head. This is not just something you need to understand. It's something that needs to be experienced as well. I mean, Mark could have just said all this, couldn't he? Jesus could have said all this. In fact, Jesus does pretty much say this at the end of chapter 8. I'm the prophet, priest, and king, listen to me. Jesus has said that in chapter 8. The difference here in chapter 9 is that the disciples experience it. They needed that. And so do you. I guess my question for you this afternoon is, have you experienced Jesus in that way? My non-Christian friend, if you've been coming to City Church for any length of time, you will have heard about Jesus, who he is, God in human flesh, what he's done, dying in your place to take the punishment for your sin, why he's done it to bring you back into the relationship with God that you were made for, to redeem all things. You know that. But have you experienced it? Have you turned from your sin and have you run into the arms of God? No? Well, might today be the day that you do that? Right here, right now, will you experience Jesus as your king, submitting to his rule in your life? Will you experience Jesus as your prophet, listening to his word? Will you experience Jesus as your priest, dying in your place? If you're ready to do that today, 
don't wait. Do it now. And come chat with me straight after the service. But for those of us who are already Christians, are you experiencing the glory of Jesus right now? I don't mean simply knowing things about Jesus. But are you experiencing these things as you worship him? Are you going up the mountain every Sunday when you come here to City Church and join together with us in worshiping Jesus? Are you going up the mountain every morning when you wake up and spend time in the Word and in prayer? Are you going up the mountain and keeping your mind and heart fixed there as you go off to work tomorrow morning? The Christian life is suffering now, glory later. But we will only persevere through the valley of suffering if we first lift our heart to experience the mountain of glory. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Thank you, Jesus, that you have once for all offered the sacrifice for sin. Thank you that that means we can run into your very presence today. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, I pray for those of us here this afternoon who've not yet taken that step, who've not yet turned to you as their king, as their prophet, as their priest, but want to do that today. Lord, hear their prayer. Holy Spirit, enter their life and transform them, I pray. And for all of us, as we prepare to tune our hearts to declare the truth of these things, Lord, would it not just be speaking truth, but would we live and experience truth? Would we know what it is to commune, to live with our glorious God, the man of glory, the perfect prophet, priest, and king? Amen.